Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Welcome everyone to the Table Dallas. We're glad that you're here with us on this third Sunday in September. We're glad that you're with us, whether you're here live at beautiful historic Mill Street House or you're joining us later on somewhere around the world and literally we have people listening all around the world. Um, We're glad that you joined us for our podcast today. We're in the third in our series called Unspoken Things and we have two guiding principles in this series. Since we've been here now a couple of weeks, rather than me sharing it with our audience, why don't you all share what are the two, let's start with the first one, what are the two overarching principles that we're using for this series? Somebody. Number one. The most important things in culture go unwritten or unspoken. All right. The most important things in a culture often or more often than not, right, go unspoken or unsaid. You're just supposed to know it. So when you come into a different culture, you could accidentally step through something, not realize you've done it because no one told you, but you're just supposed to know. All right, that's number one. Number two? Generalizations are never absolutely correct, but are often helpful. Right, so yes, that's, that's very close, right? So generalizations are always wrong, but usually helpful. Right? No one statement we can make about our culture, our individualistic culture, or a collectivist culture, whether current or ancient times, can we say, all right, everyone is like this. Right? But, however, there's a reason why it's a generality. Because in general terms, oftentimes you can make the assumption, until proven otherwise, that this is likely, that's the word, right? Likely what's happening underneath. Right? And so this week, Last week and this week, we're kind of focusing in on this idea that one of those unspoken things is the importance of family. We call it kinship in ancient times, kinship in ancient times, the importance of family. And kinship links um, are what we saw a couple of weeks ago when we looked through the genealogies, right? We talked about why does the Bible include things like genealogies? Because in your collectivist culture, so much of who you are is determined not just by what you think about yourself, but how society views, where where you are in that society, the role that you hold in that society, who who you belong to and who belongs to you is very important. So you hear that, son of, or this is part of this clan or this family, right? It's all connected there. So in the ancient Mediterranean, the smallest family unit, the smallest unit in kinship was called the father's household. The father's household. And you entered that one of three ways. Let's see if we can figure out how would you enter into the father's household. Number one would be by birth, birth, right? Physical birth. Number two? Marriage. By marriage. Last one? Adoption. By adoption. One of those three categories is what's going to bring you into a family, all right? The father's household, right? That meant, the father's household meant that he was now responsible for your care, for your provision, for all of your protection, everything that goes with that. So last week, for instance, when we saw Jacob being sent out by his father Isaac alone, 
without any supporting cast and family members, we were supposed to understand something about that. This was unusual. This is not good. This shows that there's a break between father and son, all of those things, right? All unsaid, but we're supposed to just know it, right? Next biggest family, next, famous, next biggest group was called the clan, and that's a collection of households, of father's households, that, that share a blood lineage back to a common ancestor. So it could be brothers, uncles, family members that all gather together, again, for protection, for, um, to increase wealth, to uh, keep the power structure within the family. These clans would then move together. And therefore, the final, larger still, were not really final, because we'll see in a minute there is a final, then the larger group still would be the tribes. These were households that shared blood lineage back to a common even more distant relatives. So like you could be part of a clan, which was a smaller unit of a tribe, right? But then you might find like, we might say something like extended family here in the United States, like going all your aunts and uncles and people married and in-laws and everybody back, you know, in that area, all going back to a common ancestor. And then of course we know that in the case of Israel, they came together and became a nation. So your loyalty your loyalty has a particular order. Who would like to take a guess at what that loyalty order would be? So you start first with your household. I mean, your loyalty is to that, that whole thing is kinship. Your, your father's household, your clan, your tribe, right? And then your nation. That's the order of your allegiance. First to my father's household, then to my clan, that closer group, Ultimately, then, bigger group of the tribe, and then, in the case of Israel, as it became a nation, you had some responsibility there as well. So kinship plays an important part in the story, and some of the roles and responsibilities that go with kinship, we're most familiar with the roles of kinship that became codified in the law after Moses. Things like levirate marriage, like, you know, remember in Luke chapter 20, when the Sadducees, and uh, it was the Sadducees who came to Jesus, and they asked him this question in, about marriage. Anybody remember that one in Luke 20? Seven. Yeah. Seven yeah, so there's seven brothers, seven brothers, right? And what happens in the story? Anybody remember the story? The first one dies. The first one dies? Yeah. Second one dies. Well, yeah, so the second one marries the, his ex or his... Sister-in-law Sister goes on second wife, uh, second son, third son, fourth son, fifth son, sixth son, seventh son, and we hear a story like that, and what do we think? What do we do? We think that's a legitimate question to ask of someone like Jesus. We think it's almost borders on ridiculous, like it defies imagination, right? But in the time of Jesus, when they were asking that question, by the way, that question had nothing to do with levirate marriage. It had to do about, because remember, they got, who is married to this woman in heaven? Amen. Sadducees don't believe in the afterlife, so this is a whole different thing. But in their culture, no one went, what a stupid question. Because it's not as uncommon as we might think, right? Short lifespans, death in childbirth, things like that. It's not totally out of the realm of possibility, whereas we think weird things about it, right? So when we continue on now in our patriarch stories where we've been, this is before all of this has been codified, yet it's still part of the culture. It's part of the region of the world that they live in. It is a collectivist culture. 
So what do we mean when we say a collectivist culture? Someone from the last couple of weeks, give me a couple of high points before we jump into our text for today. A couple of high points when we talk about collectivists. What's most important? The welfare of the many over the welfare of the individual. All right. So there's the, the elevation of the collective, of the family, of the group, of the the larger group over my own individual choices, yeah? What about communication style? Ambiguous, not direct. So in collectivist culture, not yeah, that ambiguity thing. over a real clear, concise uh, answer to something. We saw that in the story with Laban, right? And marrying off his firstborn instead of the one that uh, Jacob thought he was getting, right? Do you remember that story, right? He was just like, what do you want? What, what is it that you want from me? He knew exactly what he wanted. And he knew exactly what he was going to do, right? Good. Anything else about that culture we need to be aware of? Elevation of the collective or the group over the individual, the communication style is very much ambiguous, thank you, versus that really clear, direct statement that we want, all right? So when we pick up our story, or where we've been kind of wandering through the book of Genesis, we're going to be in Genesis 38. And it's a story perhaps that um, you may know. It's not one that um, we often touch base with in like Sunday school because the, <laughs> the subject material is a little challenging. Um, but we're all adults here, right? For the most part. And so we can deal with the topic material like this, right? And so when we get to Genesis chapter 38, um, and we're going to pick up a little bit into the, the middle of the story. Let me give you just a little bit of the background of Genesis 38. So Judah, Judah is the fourth son of Jacob via who? Anybody remember his mom's name? Give you a hint, it wasn't the one that he loved, it was the one with the sad eyes. Leah. Yeah, so it's Leah, fourth son of Jacob via Leah. Um, and she, excuse me, he marries Shua, the daughter of a Canaanite. Yeah, exactly. Somebody just went, you made the sound, right? So in a collectivist system, right, you're hearing dun, 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 right? Automatically when you hear it. Why? Why are they hearing that? Outside of the tribe. It's outside of the tribe. It's outside of the family. Against the direct orders of the head of the household, you don't marry outside, right? And he married a Canaanite. That should be the first clue that something's amiss. It's kind of like that weird organ music, right? And then Shua gives birth to three sons, Ur. Hey, here's my son, Ur. <laughs> this is my son, Onan. And then this is my son, Shelah. Sheila. Sheila. Yeah, exactly. Well, it is. It's S-H-E-L-A-H. It's Sheila, right? It's exactly what it is. And right off the bat, in the beginning of 38, God thought Ur was immoral, and so he put him to death. Just, just a statement. Just right off the bat. Just, you know, hey, Ur is an immoral guy. I'm going to put him to death. That's ominous organ music number two. Dun, 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 dun. Right? Why? Why is that potential organ music number two in a collectivist culture? Firstborn. He's the firstborn. He's married, but he has no children, right? So in a collectivist culture, this is big, bad potential news, right? Because family is passed on right through the idea of firstborn. We don't have time to get into it. I spent way too much time this week paying attention to firstborn. Firstborn, although we think of it 
um, as a right to the one who is, uh, first comes out of the womb, and that's true in the culture, but if you follow the pattern of the patriarchs in the early story of Genesis, it's actually a title. It's a title through which, or the pathway through which the inheritance will flow. And it's almost like you could, you could title the whole patriarch story of firstborn as the curse of the firstborn. Because starting all the way back with you know, Cain and Abel, if you want to go all the way back there, but certainly through the patriarchal stories, right? God chooses or allows, whatever word you want to use, it to pass beyond the firstborn, Ishmael, to Isaac, right? And Isaac, it was supposed to be the prophesied to Rachel, was the younger would serve the older. So Esau, we saw, sells his birthright. And the story goes on, right? All the way through Joseph, even Joseph, when he brings his children to his father, Jacob, to bless them, he puts his firstborn in his right hand to receive the blessing. And does anybody remember what happens? Yeah, he switches his hands and he puts the blessing on the younger one, right? So it's, there's this whole thing. But remember, firstborn is still important. It's critically important because it's not just about birth order. It's about whom the inheritance will f- flow through, all right? And that's a key for us to remember. So Judah commands Onan. That's the father commands his son or his brother to do his duty as a brother-in-law. Okay, his duty as a brother-in-law in that society is what? Yeah, to provide children. So he takes, he's supposed to take his sister-in-law, make him his wife, right? He's supposed to have relationships with her and provide with her a child. And the text tells us that instead of doing that, and because he was jealous that he would take his, his uh, brother's name, meaning he was being asked, follow this, he's being asked to provide the heir that's going to cut him out from the head job. Right? He's the next in line, so it would be his if there's no family member by his brother, his brother's wife, right? So he decides he's not going to um, complete the act. And God says, nay, nay, don't like this, puts him to death. So can we pause here for just a second, 13 minutes into the podcast, and say, God takes this kinship thing seriously, right? But we would just kind of be like, oh, like, I don't know that we would fully understand the significance of all of this. It just, those are introduction words. Like, God thought he was immoral. Boom, killed him. And Onan did this thing. God thought it was terrible in the, in the eyes of God, so I killed him, right? And we kind of go, ooh, that's just like gory or whatever, whatever. But all of that is setting up what's getting ready to follow in the story. Make sense? All right, so... Uh, let me go ahead, uh, Genesis 38, and we're going to break it down into a couple of sections. So we're going to pick up in uh, verse 11. I'll go ahead and read and make it a little bit easier here. So um, as we pick up the story, that's where we left off now. So in verse 11, Judah said to Tamar, that's the one who was married, to uh, his daughter-in-law Tamar, stay, remember now, she's had two husbands, smitten, smote, by the Lord, right? And he says, okay, Tamar, daughter-in-law, stay as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. He thought she would die like his brothers had, so Tamar went and lived in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Sheila, died. Then after a period of mourning, he and his neighbor, Hariah the Adullamite, went up to Timnah to those who were shearing his sheep. 
Verse 13, Tamar was told, Your father-in-law is now on his way to Timnah to shear sheep. So Tamar took off the clothing she wore as a widow, covered herself with a veil, put on makeup, and sat down at the entrance to Enaim on the road to Timnah, since she realized that although Sheila had already grown up, she hadn't been given to him as a wife. All right, let's pause there for a moment, okay? So what are, as we're getting good at this now, aren't we? We've been looking at these texts. So what are some of the unspoken things happening in this text that we, they're said, but they're also unsaid. What are some of those things? Judah hasn't fallen, followed through on his promise to marry Shelah at the moment. All right, so Judah, the father, has not kept his promise up to this point. The implication being that Shelah is now old enough to be married, and we could talk about there was never really an age requirement. So you could almost argue from the beginning about Judah what? He, he was not really interested in having his third son be married to Tamar, right? So he has not, um, at the very least, he has not kept his duties as the father of a household. <laughs> All right. What was that? It didn't go well for the first two. I can't blame you. Okay, and so and that's a fair statement, right? So he's seen what's happened to two of his sons. So maybe there is a part of him that's like, she's a black widow. No, I mean, I mean, seriously, right? I mean, but, she's like, what? I said it earlier, and she was like, what's is that? Is that wrong? But you see, that's a Western thought. That's a Western thought. I don't think that would probably cross through his mind. Uh, it would obviously cross through his mind because it says it right in the text, right? He, he was like, uh, my first two sons, uh, I don't think I want to send the third one, right? So he's definitely not kept his, what else? His responsibility? I think it's interesting that he sent her back to her father's household. Why? I mean, she was part of his yeah. household. So how can you send somebody back to somebody else's household? Is that a, is that common or is that no exactly? I mean, you're in the, in the collectivist reading of this. The original the original readers who hear the story would be it would like to be a collective gasp, like <gasps> like we think of it as normal, right? Okay, your husband died. I gave you another one. He's dead. Um, you you go, go back to your dad. It's his unspoken way of. Right. Uh, shaming her, or all of those things. Do you think he was trading on the hey, maybe, maybe this was a bad idea marrying a Canaan woman? Could be. Maybe this is just desserts from our our bad decision. In that, let's see if we can cut it off. That's not. That's not. Yeah, yeah. That's that's given him a lot of of forethought and going. You know what? <laughs> this was a mistake, and let's not compound that mistake by. And therefore, I'll send her back. But even if that's the case, he shouldn't have done it. The action in that him. culture is as about as shameful as you could possibly do. Why? That his, he didn't, his sons didn't take the responsibility for their disobedience to God, and so he shifted that mm. from the sons to her because mm. they they died from their disobedience. Mm -hmm. Well, the first one, Ur, dies just because he's an evil immoral, person. <laughs> moral person. Onan dies because he's. He refuses to do his his duty, Levi, well, we call it later on, but his duty in the collective culture to provide an heir, right? 
So he dies. So instead of putting the shame on his family, he puts the shame on her and ships her off. Uh, okay, so he's based, so by shipping her off, he's a basically he's assigning blame, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But again, see, I would suggest that's a very Western way of reading it, because blame in that situation, there's so much of it to go around here in all of these areas. He's trying to, we trying to, you know, say, well, he's putting it on her, and that may be, it may be true, could be part of it. But do we know if she was Israelite or Canaanite? Because Judah's wife was Canaanite, but we don't know if this girl was Israelite or Canaanite, do we? We, I mean, the implication being, because that's her clan and that's the family that she's from, that she would also be a Canaanite. That's the implication. We don't, it doesn't no, her specify. Mother, no, her mother's Canaanite. Correct. I mean, no. no. I said that. The boy's mother. The boy's mother is Canaanite. So we don't know about. We don't know about the. That's a good point. Her. That's a good observation. So we don't know <laughs> for certain. Okay, <laughs> that's true. But her sending it back. Wh- why is that such a challenging situation? Beyond just the maybe I want to get rid of this potential black widow. Beyond just I'm not taking care of my responsibility. From her perspective, what's happening here? But he also told her to stay as a widow. Stay as a widow and move right. in your... Yeah, so but, there you're going back, but you're but not going to get married when you go back. Correct. So what does that mean? <clears throat> but there was also a dowry involved, too. Would there not have been? Yeah. So the, her, his, her dad gave you know a big old dowry, but he returned the daughter, but not the dowry. But, but in her situation, what's going to happen now? She's... She's, she's on her own. She's on her own. She's, she's, she, her family is the family of Judah. She's been bought, adopted by marriage, or if you want to call it by marriage, into the family. She belongs to that family. He's like, eh-eh, you go back to your family. So she lives in shame. She lives in poverty. She lives without protection, without any future, no inheritance, nothing. Right? She's literally being sentenced to a life of misery by Judah and his actions. That's what we're supposed to hear when we read that story. Not just, oh, I think she's not such a good person. I want to send her home. We're supposed to read, oh, my goodness, he has just sent her out, kind of like what happened to Ishmael, you know, back then when Abram sent he and Agar out. Mike? I have a question. What would be her family's obligation to her at that point? None. She'd be more like a servant in the household. Probably. Yeah, she's, she's done. Right, I mean, the shame, I mean, it's just, you would hide her, she would be put away where no one would see her. I mean, this is like, you know, when you tell the story, like, yeah, she said two husbands that were struck down by God. Yeah, you don't, you don't, you kind of make sure that that's the crazy uncle you don't ever talk about. Right? Good. So Judah's failing, and Tamar waits, but when Sheila grows up, verse 14, Judah doesn't arrange the marriage. Again, we're supposed to shake our heads in dismay. Right? The father of the household has left Tamar homeless and inheritantless, and he's also dishonored his son Ur, and none of that is explicitly stated, but we're all supposed to understand it. So that's the basis now as we pick up the story, and this is the part of the story we go, huh? Huh? But you have to remember those first 14 verses, filled with all those unspoken things, set this up. Now, verse 15. One more question, David. Yeah. Uh, in 14, where she. Uh uh, dressed herself up and everything. Isn't that also kind of contrary to that collective thinking? Now she's doing something for herself, or I don't get that part. Is she just making a personal decision? 
So she, what? read the story, let me finish the story and you'll see. I probably should have stopped it at 13 in retrospect because 14 fits better with 15. Okay. So I'll start with 14. So Tamar took off the clothing she wore as a widow, which is what? Complete head to toe, cover in black, nothing showing, except her eyes, right? Um, puts on makeup, sat down at the entrance and da 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 da. Um, Judah saw her, verse 15, and thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face with makeup that is. He turned to her beside the road and said, let me sleep with you. I mean, just straight up. Now, remember, his wife's gone, so I guess he's thinking party time or something. Because <laughs> he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? And he said, I will give you a kid goat from my flock. She said, only if you give me some deposit as security to guarantee, guarantee that you will send it Obviously, he wasn't carrying it with him. He said, what kind of deposit should I give you? And she said, your seal, its cord, and the staff in your hand. And he gave those to her, slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. Then he got up, left, took off her... Then he got up, left, and took off her veil. Then she... Why am I saying you? Then she got up, left, and took off her veil, dressing once again in the clothing she wore as a widow. And Judah sent the kid goat with his neighbor... Hira, the Adamalite, Adolamite, excuse me, so he could take back the deposits from the woman, but he couldn't find her. He asked the locals of that place, where is the consecrated worker? <laughs> consecrated worker? Who was at Enan on the road? But they said, there is no consecrated worker here. So he went back to Judah and said, I can't find her. The locals here have even said, there is no holy woman here. Holy woman here. <laughs> And Judah said, let her keep everything so we aren't laughed at. I did send this kid goat, but you couldn't find her. All right. Unspoken things in the story. Some of the things that we now pick up, perhaps. Anybody? Judah's not faithful. <laughs> Judah is what? Not faithful. To God. Because, because he thought she was a temple in Ah, so there's, there's something. So when we see that language of the holy woman or a consecrated woman, in that culture we're automatically to think this is someone whose life has been given to the service of one of the lowercase Elohim, lowercase g, Elohim gods of the nation, of that region. So here's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the unnamed God. He still didn't have a name. That's not until Moses. He's still the unnamed God who's made all these promises. What has Judah just demonstrated? He has essentially worshipped another God. He's got <laughs> no connection in his mind whatsoever to this un and no loyalty to this unnamed God. In fact, he might be thinking something completely different. What might he be thinking? All right. Again, knowing the storyline, all the unspoken things. That God hasn't been faithful to him because his children. Yeah, his yeah. sons are dead. He doesn't have an heir, right? So this God isn't working, lowercase g. This Elohim isn't doing the trick. So maybe if I go to this consecrated woman and I sleep with her, then maybe God will bless me. That's the underlying story. So you have unfaithfulness to this unnamed God. What else do we see here? I got to say, David, I, I don't think he was theolo thinking theologically. All right. I, I, <laughs> fair statement. Fair statement. 
but it demonstrates our individualistic notions, right? So, I mean, yeah. I mean, Would you take we're it not as dumb. Judah was open to any option at this point. True, and uh, true, full stop. But I would say that in that culture, this this was considered in that period in Canaanite in that in Canaan in that time period this was part of I mean obviously guys set up that worship thing somehow yeah. right but it was it's more than just I'm alone and I see this pretty woman sitting at the gate it it's helps. it's more than that. he would have known the whole story of what was entailed in that yes transaction yes he know yes exactly he knows what's yeah so she's receiving that payment on behalf of the god that she serves oh no here's my wife can I mention one more thing okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is the we are adults right example of having relations with somebody but you don't see them or know who they mm-hmm. are mm-hmm. like you know this person and you're having relations with them but you think they're somebody else there is a certain irony to that isn't what there what is that 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 his father, Jacob, went through that same scenario where he didn't know he ends up with Leah, the, the homely-looking one, first, right? But like, we talked about that last week. Like, how does he not know? But remember, uh, we don't have to go down. The face coverings. This time, she's, she's made up as a temple prostitute. There's all kinds. I mean, just the imagery there of what she's wearing. And he's not really interested in... The Western idea of the love that happens in a relationship. Okay, that's not what's happening here. You get the point? Mm-hmm. All right. So it's likely not. Uh, Dude, I need you to flush that out. <laughs> it's not face-to-face engagement. Let's just put it that way. All right. This isn't romance. This isn't love. This isn't tenderness. Okay. This is something completely else. What else do we see? Some of the unspoken things. There's a couple things that should jump out. So she knows who he is. Mm-hmm. Is she doing that in revenge? Mm-hmm. So she's. Yeah. We don't know what she's doing she's at this point in the story, but she's doing it on purpose. On purpose. Right. Well, yeah. She yeah. took his seal, cord, and staff. Yes. So what's that all about? Secure the future. Yeah. Seals everything. I mean. So that's your. Yeah. That's your, that is who you are. That's your passport. So that way he can't deny. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh huh. He yep. can't deny mm-hmm. his okay. responsibility because he didn't. He didn't live up to his responsibility here. But right. now that I have the seal and the staff, then he's going to have to live up to his responsibility. Yeah, here. it's it's it's. This is all orchestrated and planned, yep. which is what we're supposed to see mm-hmm. on her part. Yep. Yes. And I also wonder if there's a bit of that, like going back to what you said earlier. She was a woman who had been married twice and had no children to show for it, so she's considered barren. Mm-hmm. And so now her opportunity to say, uh-uh-uh, not me. No, it, it, that's exactly what we're supposed to see. She is recognizing her situation. I'm inheritless. I have no protection. I have no family. This is how she would have likely ended up anyway, just on the street doing something because she has nothing. She's like, uh-uh. I'm not going to be that little timid little th- I am going to make sure that what is my, excuse me, what is due me, do me is becomes true, right? Well, no matter what. To her expectations of marrying the brother and trying to right. be part of his family, right? And then the the father didn't keep that going, living up to his responsibility. Yeah, and, and all of it could have been avoided. How? If, if, he if Judah had just followed through with what was 
what was the, the cultural norm and expectation of the time, which was let Sheila marry and give her an heir, right? He can marry others too, but his responsibility, right, to do that. What else stands out? Unspoken things. That the seal, the core, the staff, the unique identifiers as the father of the household, that, that seal, the cord you wear around your neck, the staff is a symbol of power, right? You've got all of that. I feel like they're just so willing to give up inheritances, things mm-hmm. that, because we saw this before, with that, food, that with, with <laughs> Jacob and Esau. They're right. just giving away their, their inheritance like it's nothing. Right. For so being a center portion yes. of that idea. But why? We almost, if I, if I had done my original study here, we would have gone and looked at, going back and re-looked at the story of Jacob and Esau again. Because, remember, it's a weird thing there. So before Jacob and Esau are born, they're wrestling in the mom, right? And she's, she basically says a statement like, I can't believe I'm in, why is this happening to me? Like, this is miserable, whatever. And then the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, don't worry, this is all part of the plan. But the younger is going to be in authority over the older, or the older will serve the younger is actually how it was said, right? So if you think about it, though, why might this group of people, all the way back to Abraham, for instance, then going on to Isaac, even now to Jacob in his sense, why might they treat this idea of the inheritance? Remember, the inheritance is all of the family, the property, the land, the you know the children, the wealth that you've collected as your as your family has grown. Why might this not be as big of a deal to them as we think it should be? Maybe because dad has the final say. Okay. Maybe Could it be like, yeah, 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 you can have my inheritance when he knows that really it comes down to who dad blesses and could names. be. Mm-hmm. Could be. They've already moved to a whole different country. And what's a couple of different countries. And actually. what's the problem with that? What don't they have? It's like my mom. It's such a great, so great. She's like, now I want you to know that because of all this that you've done for me to care for me, you 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 should inherit the the biggest part of the estate. <laughs> to which I'm like, <coughs> at the end of last month it was twenty six cents and whatever. No, but my mom doesn't have a big, and this not a, this has nothing to do with her. It's just she doesn't have an estate. So if I'm like, hey sister, you want the firstborn blessing? Here you go. You know what I'm saying? Because there's no land, you, you really you, your value is how much you value the promise of an unnamed God who has yet to deliver. Now Abraham got deliverance. He got God to deliver on part of it, right? He got the promised son. But these other ones, the land and families, that multitudes that would be more than the stars in the sky, every story we've read since then is barren, 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 dying off, dying off. So they don't, I think they treat it lightly because there's really not much to gain. They have their own families. That's not going anywhere. Whatever collective wealth that they have individually with their wives and and their animals, that's all going to be theirs. There's not much to gain because there's no land. Land is what, in a collective culture, gives you a permanence for you and your family. It makes you a man. But it seems like the women value the inheritance more than the men value because Mm -hmm. they're always scheming to get it. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. It's possible. Yeah, that's true. 
That is a true statement. It's their security. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So Tamar is like, you have my dowry, I'm going to get my dowry back. Essentially, that's essentially that's what it is. I mean, in, in, in simple words, I do think it's it's kind of, there's a certain irony in verse 17. Now look at verse 17, and somebody pick up, see if you can pick up the irony of that story, of that part of the story with the connected, think back through stories that are just before this one, that have a kid goat. So there's a kid goat in this story, and remember what Jacob did? To deceive his father, he took the skin of a young goat. Do, do you remember the kid goat? And he put it on his arms. To isn't there a certain irony that in the story? I just wonder. Here's my question: Do you think Tamar knew that story? That's why she asked for a kid goat. That's what goes through my mind. I'm like, I mean, is conniving and planned out, David? Is all of this is? She knows that, doesn't she, David? She knows the story. I don't think so. No. You don't think so? Okay, that's, that's fair. Stretch. I think that's a stretch. And she doesn't okay. ask for the kid goat. He offers the kid goat. No, because no, he always he keeps... doesn't have it with them, so she wants a deposit. Right. So if, if he had had it with them, then I think it would have been a different story. That's true. That might be true. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. He just keeps one on hand in case there's <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you're right, David. You're right. I take it all back. What will you give me? And right. he's the one who does Now, that, maybe that's even more ironic. Yeah. Yeah, that he picks that up. He would know that story. What? He would know yeah, that he would know that story. story. Yeah. yeah. You know, how did she know that he didn't have the, wouldn't have the goat though? When you think about it, how did she know that the? Because that's what they're up doing. They're getting ready to shear. But this is a young kid goat. Yeah. So it's the wrong time of the year for kids. They're right. up. They're at the end of the cycle. They're they're shearing she them. She knows who he is. Yeah. She, she knows she exactly what she's doing. What, what's going no, on? No, I know, but I was just well, thinking. She can look at him and see he's not a goat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's keep going. Let's finish the story. I know we're late, but let's, we got to finish the story. This is just fascinating to me. So verse 24, about three months later, <laughs> Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has become a prostitute and is now pregnant because of it. How do we, how does he, how does it, how does that, anybody know that? But, <laughs> Say that again. Say that again. She's supposed to marry Sheila. Now she's a prostitute. Um, and Judah said, so Judah's response, now as the head of the household, right? He says, bring her out here so that she may be burned, right? So that is... In, in that time period, that's like uh, un- being unfaithful to like uh, to your spouse. So yeah, that kind of thing. Right. She brought shame on the family. Like but you. but the death by burning has to do with this is what ties that religious piece into it. So that's what what you would do. Who's someone who's turned themselves over to a foreign god in service like that? You wouldn't just stone them. You would burn them. Symbolic, right? So later on, when the fire comes down and consumes that fire, right? This is this is all adds to this idea that what she was doing was kind of a worship, like trying to get him to to buy into worship of the local god there. And he's like, "Up, oh, she's basically what he's saying is she has begun to worship a foreign god. Shame of all shame! How dare she do that? So we're going to burn her, destroy all the evidence." When she was brought out, she sent this message to her father. And by the way, this this thing of um, what was the word? I'm losing the word. Um, uh, no. So you never go out and do this yourself. You always send a representative. 
brokerage. brokerage. That's one of the other things we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. Brokerage. Notice he sent the sheep through someone. Judah doesn't do any of this, right? He's always sending someone. That's because brokerage, and we'll talk about that in the future. He said, uh, I'm, he said, send this message to your father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these things. Here you go. Cue the organ music. Dun, 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 dun. See if you recognize whose seal and, co- and staff, cord and staff these are. There's that ambiguous. See if you know. See who could this be? Verse 26. Judah recognized them. Judah recognized them and said, She's more righteous than I am because I didn't allow her to marry my son, Sheila. Judah never knew her intimately, intimately again. And then it goes on and tells about the birth. So, this is quite a scene, right? Especially, I would say, Judah's response, right? He's, he's being... How would you describe how he responds to the situation? What would we say in the West? What words would we assign to his response? Repentance. Well, before that, I'm sorry, his initial response, excuse me. His initial response... Self-preservation. Self-righteousness. Like, he knows, like we know, he knows he did the same thing. But, oh, oh my gosh, my, 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 notice he calls her my, your, he's been told it's his daughter-in-law. Wait, I thought he sent her back to the family, right? I, uh, suddenly, suddenly she's daughter-in-law again, right? And he's like, now, he asked for the common penalty. There's nothing wrong with the penalty. You know, that's what would have been expected, except for the fact that it was his fault. It's his fault. Now, what else stands out? Anything else? I mean, well, to me, the thing that stands out is he had this expectation of obligation on her that she remain a widow, but he, she's not in his home. She's in her father's home an expectation that she not proceed with her life, have children, et cetera, what normal people would do. And, and meanwhile, he has her dowry. Yes, mm-hmm. and feels no, so he has expectations on her, but he has no sense of obligation towards her. So there's no mutual reciprocity. Right, and that's what the original hearers would have been all aghast about. Like, oh my goodness, can you believe how self-righteous or how self-focused this one is because he's stepped over every one of these guidelines and now he's sitting there and, and he's like, oh, so that's why he can make that response, right? She is more righteous than me. Notice it's not God doesn't say she's more righteous. There's no, this unnamed God is not in this picture yet, right? There's no comment from Yahweh about whether this is right or wrong. He's just saying she is more righteous. Why? Than I am. Why is she more righteous? He didn't live up to his obligation. Why, why is she then more righteous than he? She's making him better Yeah, she yeah. would not give up. She, she was going to go to whatever means necessary, right, to make sure that the obligation was lived up to, right? We look at her usually in the West, right? Most of the time, Tamar is treated as kind of like, all right, she was conniving, and of course, that's our. We could argue that's the patristic history of the way the scriptures have been read for, you know, it's the woman's fault. Blame the woman, blame the woman, right? But in that, he says just the opposite. She did what she, what she, did what she needed to do to make sure that she got what was coming to her, what was deserved 
for her so that she could protect herself, care for herself, and her family. The problem is, now she's pregnant, right? So now, she's pregnant. Now the inheritance has to go through. See what's happening here now? You're starting to hold. Now that she has a child, the wife of his firstborn has a child. Guess where the inheritance goes? Now through the child of this, and you can just see the dynamics are going to get crazy moving forward. All because Judah didn't live up to what, his, what was expected of him in his culture. This isn't a God thing, this is his culture. Later on it would be codified in the law, but it's not now. But all of this, right? And what's going to happen as a result of this and the turmoil that's going to continue in the family, right? Just another evidence of how we might miss something in the story if we don't first understand the unspoken things that are the threads that pull and connect all of the stories together. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.